No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so we went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Thanks, Mike. Well, if you haven't already, uh, go ahead and start turning to Luke chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I'm going to ask my fashion director a question real quick, because you would have asked me or told me about this anyways after. Ty Stump. Does my hair look more or less gray in this lighting right now? Because I know you were going to tell me after the sermon. Way more? All right. So I figured the case was I almost adjusted the lights differently so I wouldn't get that from you, but that's all right. It's just wisdom is what this is for you right there. All right. Ty always tells me that, wow, the lighting really makes your hair look gray. So I was very curious what this would look like up on stage. All right. Well, we're going to be finishing... uh, Luke chapter 11 this week. We spent the last two weeks looking at it. 
And if you remember where we left off last week when Josh was preaching, um, the, the crowd was looking for a sign from God, much like the Ninevites had the sign of Jonah coming to them to tell them who God is and how he's at work. So Jesus is picking up on that desire for a sign by moving into a discussion about light. And light is really going to carry through everything that we see here today. So as we start to talk about light, I'm going to ask you to do something weird to start. All right, everybody do this. It's okay. I'll do it too. I need you all to close your eyes. All right, mine are closed too, so I can't tell if yours are or not. I trust that you are. Close them like, do it like when you shut them like super duper tight, like you're trying to close them as much as possible and just leave them closed for a second. We'll just, just awkwardly do this for a little bit. All right, now open them. So when your eyes were closed, what, what could you see when you're doing that? Right, obviously, you can't see much. You just see some shadows, maybe some fragments of the light that your eye had already taken in. It's not like perfectly dark because we got these bright gray herring lights coming up in this room and stuff. But when you open your eyes, how much different is things? Well, suddenly our eyes are flooded with, with light, with, with uh, colors, with shapes, with sizes of different things when we finally open up and see what's in front of us. The eye is, is one of the most incredible things in, in all of creation. Uh, it, it's so complex in how it functions and what it does. In fact, it was the one part of the human body that gave Darwin pause about whether his theory of evolution was true. Because how could something so complex just come to be over time? It amazes me that with all the technology each, that we get with, of each new generation of phone and, and TVs and, and things like that getting better and better, that nothing as good as just being able to open your eyes and actually see something live. Well, Jesus begins his teaching in our passage by talking about how light and the eye go together. In fact, Jesus being the light is going to connect to these three different interactions he has uh, with people here. And Jesus is, is the light who is three things we'll talk about. He's the personal light we see in verses 33 through 36. He's the piercing light in verses 37 through 54. And he's a purifying light, we'll see at the beginning of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So let's, let's reread Luke eleven thirty three and 36, and see how Jesus is a personal light. So Jesus says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So Jesus reminds us what happens when you light a lamp. Well, this isn't something that we do nowadays, but you still probably know how light works, I'm going to guess, in this room. When you light a lamp, the first thing you wouldn't do is put it under a bowl. First of all, you're not going to see the light. Second, lack of oxygen is going to extinguish that thing pretty fast. No, if you, if you lit a lamp back then, you would put it on a stand as high as it could be. The higher up you put that light, the more it's going to illuminate everything. Much like we don't have floor lights lighting up this sanctuary, but the lights are all up high, right? Giving light to this whole room for us uh, this evening. I almost said this morning. Mike Dahl, you said it this morning and you got me, got me caught in there. Uh, so what's happening here with Jesus talking about light is this seems to be a direct condemnation of those who were just demanding a sign from him, as we saw in last week's passage. 
Jesus is standing right in front of them, but they couldn't see who he really was. They had a spiritual vision problem. They demanded more proof than Jesus gave them, even though he's already given them plenty of proof of his identity. Jesus is saying is that if your eyes are messed up, you're only going to see darkness. He's associating that with sin or evil. But if your eyes are good, you'll see the light. You'll see Jesus and the things of Jesus's kingdom. So we're given a a careful warning about what is radiating from within us. We're to make sure that the source of our vision is not darkness, but that our body be full of light. There's no darkness in light. Before coming to Jesus, we're all spiritually blind and unable to see spiritual truth. But we see with our spiritual eyes, once we know Jesus, and then our bodies, our souls, our person, who we are, all of us, is full of light. And from there, we're supposed to shine from the inside out. We've already seen some teaching from Jesus of talking about two different kingdoms. He's talking about the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And when he's talking about those, he's saying there's, there's no neutrality. There's no middle ground when it comes to those, those kingdoms. You're in one or the other, either sons and daughters of the kingdom of darkness or of the kingdom of light. We must choose the kingdom of light. We must choose Jesus. Now, light is something that Jesus talks about all over the place in the Gospels. In John 8, 12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, we have the light of the world shining in and through us. And we see the world completely differently. Our worldview is forever altered. And we see all of life differently than those who are still full of darkness. We answer the big questions of life differently and live differently because of Jesus shining in and through us. Uh, Pastor Jonathan Edwards, he, he says this, A sound eye allows the kingdom of God inaugurated by Jesus to enter and infuse one's life. People who are receptive to the kingdom are thus given light and guidance necessary to negotiate a dark world. And then Christian musician Michael Card, who also has written some theology books, says, when a door is open to a darkened room, the light floods in and illumines every corner. The darkness does not extinguish the light. It is always pushed back. The evil generation should simply look to the sure sign of the light that is in Jesus. They should stop asking for other signs, for no more signs will be coming. It's with the light of Jesus in us that we shine for him. Again, Jesus talking, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When they see our good works, they don't praise us for our good works. They praise our Father in heaven because it's his light shining through us. So Jesus reminds us when the eye is good, when it's completely healthy, the action of the whole body, all of us, is influenced by it. But when on the contrary, when, when the eye is evil uh, or diseased, it affects the physical comfort and activity of the whole person. Now, back when Jesus is talking in, in the Middle East during these times, eye diseases would have been painfully common. They didn't have eye drops. You could just go to fix any eye problem you had. So this, this illustration is one that they would get right away. If you're having issues with your eyes, there's probably nothing you're going to be able to do about it. That's going to affect your quality of life going forward. Uh, But what a good eye 
a good heart does, what does it look like when that personal light is shining? Well, the good heart is one that is not only changed, converted, and renewed, but it's thoroughly, powerly, constantly under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's a heart which loathes all compromises, all lukewarmness of religion. It sees one great objective, to glorify God and do His will. And it has one main desire, to please God and be commended by Him. Compared with this, the, the, the praise and favor of man are nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect or that we're not going to have struggles. That's going to happen. Even the examples of the faith throughout Scripture, they have weaknesses and they made mistakes, but they had good hearts. They were unmistakably men and women of God. The blessings of a good heart are vast. The person who has it, they try to do good all the time. They're, they're like a lighthouse in the middle of a dark world. They reflect light on, on hundreds of people whom they may not even know, but they still see there's something different about them. So our eye must be good and healthy if our whole body is to be full of light. May we be people who are full of the light of Jesus that shines out in the darkness. And while Jesus is teaching this, he encounters a group that hasn't seen or embraced the light. He's invited in verse 37 to attend a meal at the house of a Pharisee. Let's read 37 through 54 again. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As they went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Commentator James Dunn sets up this interaction like this. He says, The conflict between Jesus and his enemies here reached its climax. He rebuked their hypocrisy and pronounced upon them six woes. 
His words are full of warning for his followers of all ages. Religions ever tend to become a matter of form and ritual. Hypocrisy is often unconscious. Its practice is almost universal. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first look at this passage and was studying it this week, I noticed Jesus's tone and how he's talking to them. Uh, I realized I don't think I've ever taught on a passage where Jesus sounds, I mean, he sounds almost mean, right, in how he's talking to these guys. He just got invited to a guy's, guy's house for a meal, and then he wastes little time pronouncing woes on them. If you invited me over for dinner and I came in and just started going off on you, you'd be like, this is not the meal that I expected that it was going to be. Jesus doesn't sound too happy. Uh, it made me think of one of my all-time favorite Seinfeld episodes where George Costanza's father, Frank Costanza, decides to reinstitute the made-up holiday, holiday of Festivus, a Festivus for the rest of us. And in doing this, uh, Frank gathers all of, of the family and friends together at a dinner table and decides to practice one of the main tenets of Festivus, which is called the airing of grievances. And Frank yells at the people, I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. And he goes on to lambast everybody at the table, because that's what you do at Festivus. It's, it's part of the main practices. Uh, Pastor Josh and Mike actually suggested I do an airing of grievances with you guys in my sermon, and I'll be honest, I was shocked at that advice. They didn't actually tell me to do that. There's no airing of grievances from me today. Uh, but this doesn't sound like nice Jesus, does it, and how he's talking here. The one that we see so often in the story of Luke's gospel, who's just loving people and feeding people and healing them and telling them how much God loves them. This Jesus is fired up. Look, in, in verse 40, he calls them fools. Six times he, he pronounces woes upon them. A woe, as, as commentator Daryl Bach put it, is a cry for God's judgment in light of an action that deserves a divine response. So Jesus wasn't happy with these guys. These two groups, they're part of the church leadership of the day. The Pharisees were, were basically pastors who were like super duper crazy, hyper conservative, hyper critical, uh, focused a ton on behavior. They majored in the minor things of the faith. The lawyers here, these are not like personal injury lawyers who are looking for a, a quick cash grab. These were expert in God's law, the Bible. So these guys are supposed to be the Bible scholars and theologians, the good Christians that you would expect to know how to handle God's word. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a great like first Bible for toddlers, it calls the Pharisees extra super holy people is how they're described. That's what they thought they were, and that's how the world perceived them, extra super holy people. And Jesus here, he, he's hard on them if we're being honest. He calls them names. He calls curses down on them and then calls them out on the duplicities of their hearts and lives. So I'm going to break down in a second each thing that Jesus says to them, but I want you to understand why he's talking to these guys like this. See, this, this is the piercing light of Jesus at work. Jesus had just finished talking about how the good eye sees light and evil sees darkness. Jesus is using here a sharp, piercing delivery to try and open up the eyes of these religious hypocrites. One of the, the pictures of Jesus in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, is, is him having a sword coming out of his mouth. And that's what I kind of think Jesus is doing here in this story. 
with, with the righteous and holy flaming sword of his mouth, he cuts through these men and pierces them right in their hearts. So why, why is Jesus like this? Why is he doing this? Well, here's what I'd say. I think for these guys, this is the most loving thing that Jesus could do for them. Throughout Jesus' life, he consistently opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, just like God does for all people. And sometimes what we need when we're being proud, when we're being duplicitous or we're being hard, is we need someone to just speak straight to us. Sometimes it's the only thing that will work. In Jeremiah 23, 29, God says this, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what Jesus is doing here. Oftentimes throughout uh, the book of Acts, the, the story of, of, of the next 30 years of, of the church after Jesus has gone back to heaven, you see stories of people who were not Christians that when they first encounter the message of the gospel, they are cut to the heart. They recognize their need for him. So what I want to simply say today is sometimes we need to see the light of God's word to pierce us. Sometimes we need someone to just shoot us straight. Sometimes we're so concerned about never upsetting someone that we won't speak the, the straight and simple truth to them when that's what they actually need. Sometimes we're blind to our own faults and failures. It's like we're just, you know, stumbling around in the dark and we need someone to shine God's light for us so we might get back on the path of walking with him. One of the, the best things that ever happened to me in my walk with the Lord is, is my youth pastor, Joel Moore, he pulled me aside in, I don't know, eighth or ninth grade, and he set me down and he told me in the most loving way, Jordan, you're a real jerk. He was right. I was totally a jerk. Uh, I was a pastor's kid who walked around like I owned the place. I was quick to use my humor to put others down and make fun of them so that, that people would instead like me and think that I was funny. And Joel loved me so much he cut through everything and told me what I needed to hear. I was mean. And if I stopped being mean, I might have a chance to actually make a difference in people's lives. Now, that's a long preamble to actually breaking down these verses. But I know for me, understanding where Jesus is coming from and understanding how I personally have needed a piercing light in my own life helps me better understand the tone with which Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders. So let, let's talk about this. The Pharisees invite Jesus to have a meal, but Jesus doesn't wash his hands. Now, kids and students, this is not a verse in the Bible telling you you don't have to wash your hands before you eat dinner, okay? Well, Jesus didn't wash his That's not, that is not what this is about at all, okay? The Pharisees are astonished. They're not astonished at his lack of hygiene. Maybe some of you in this room are like, really, he didn't wash his hands? I, I, I get it. It's a little bit gross. I don't he should have washed his hands, but he's making a bigger point than washing your hands. There's something deeper going on here. The issue for the Pharisee is being the religious elite that they were, they would always ceremonially cleanse themselves before touching or eating thing to wash the sinful world or the spiritual less than of the world out there, get it off of themselves 
before they would eat something. So the Pharisee clearly expected that Jesus, also being a noted religious leader, would do the same thing. And by the way, this wasn't an Old Testament law. This is something that the Pharisees had added as religious practice to preserve their holiness above the rest of a sinful world. Now, it's not recorded that the Pharisees said anything, but Jesus discerned his astonishment and he said something. He stressed the importance of the inward, whereas the Pharisees had their multitude multitude of rules that was only concerned for the outward. Uh, The results of this was that they could keep their rules, but as Jesus said, they could still be full of greed and wickedness. They were concerned with what one does, Jesus with what one is. And so bluntly, he, he rebukes them as fools. We see similar language of Jesus talking about you're like a whitewashed tomb. We see this cup being washed on the outside, but not on the inside. I'd rather drink out of a cup that's dirty on the outside than the inside personally. Much like a whitewashed tomb, it looks clean on the outside, but what's inside? Death and decay. This is how he's comparing the Pharisees and how they're living their lives. Before getting on with the woes, Jesus ends his rebuke by saying, God created the outward and the inward, and he is concerned about both. And then Jesus tells them, though, they need to give things that are within. And when he does this, it almost sounds similar to the language of verses 33 and 36, where he's talking about the light. The sense of the statement is, give first the offering of of the inner self. Give your heart, your affections, and your will to God as your primary concern, and then all of your actions will flow from a right heart, and your sacrifices and offerings will be acceptable to God. Unfortunately, that was not how the Pharisees and lawyers were living. So we get into these six woes. So the first one is basically don't neglect compassion. I think there's important things that we can learn for this as, as well. Don't neglect compassion. So in verse 42, he says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus grieves over the Pharisees for their tithing practices. Now, tithing is a commandment in the Old Testament law. It was meant, though, to be this this joyful uh, offering of love. But these guys, they're calculating a tenth of every little herb that's growing out in their garden to give even that at the temple. They've turned uh, what's supposed to be this joyous occasion of giving back to God, like a burdensome mockery of the heart of what's actually happening here. That kind of detail, it was not required by the law. The Pharisees are going way beyond what was required. Now, there's nothing actually wrong in doing this. Jesus doesn't say that, like, hey, you shouldn't do this. But when people concentrate on the minor things, they're much more likely to overlook the big, important things. These guys carry to an extreme their zeal in giving tithes to the temple, and yet they neglected the most obvious duties towards God and to their neighbors. They were scrupulous to an extreme amount about small matters of ceremonial law, and yet they were utterly dismissive about the first principles of justice to man and love toward God. In the secondary things of their religion, they are great enthusiasts. They've got that covered. But they were no better than the pagans in many of the primary things. We need to be on guard that we're not elevating the the good things, the good practices of religion that make us feel more holy than the rest of the world, and then abandon 
those who are actually in need. So the first woe, don't neglect compassion. The second one there is don't seek prominence, or you could say don't be prideful too. Verse 43 says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. So synagogue is, is another word for church. And what Jesus is basically saying is that these guys loved being up on stage where everyone could look at them and think they were great. So how church worked for them, and you can find some churches that still do this, is all the super important people, maybe the people who are serving that day, so we could get the the praise band and Mike and Joe back up here, would just sit on stage the whole time during a message being delivered. And people in the audience would think, wow, those people are super special that they're up there. They want the best seat in the house. They want to be the person on stage. That sounds incredibly awkward to me. Uh, a couple times in Tanzania, I've had to be on the stage waiting my chance to preach on things. And I'm like, I'd, I'd rather be out in the crowd before I walk up here. But that's just me being so humble. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> the other part of this is they love sitting outside the church in the marketplace and having people look at them and think, man, if I really love God, I'd be like that. That's the reaction they want. They liked people thinking that they were better. But how dangerous and deceptive is pride? C.S. Lewis in his all-time classic, Mere Christianity, says this about pride. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. A self-righteous prude who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. Pride, and especially spiritual pride, are so dangerous. I'll be honest, I get concerned about the social media culture we live in, where everything is about followers and getting likes and constantly screaming out, look at me, look at me. When we want others to look at us, Jesus says, whoa, slow down. Be careful, it can lead us down a dangerous road. The third woe is don't contaminate others. In verse 44, he says, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So Jesus calling them unmarked or unseen graves might be another way to translate this or to think of it. So to come in contact with a grave was to be seen as ceremonially unclean or defiled. A problem was that sometimes people were buried in unmarked graves, where they didn't have a post up, or they didn't have used crosses back then, or, you know, they didn't have something up showing that it was a grave, and so an unknowing traveler could easily walk over such a grave, and then unintentionally, they become defiled. So there's irony in the comparison of the religious Pharisees, who thought so well of themselves to these unsuspected sources of corruption, of defilement. People who walked over unmarked graves became ceremonially unclean, and people who walked in the teaching and ways of the Pharisees became morally unclean. At this point, the lawyers enter the conversation. Now, the lawyers, who were men who spent all of their time to study the Old Testament law, uh, they don't like what Jesus has been saying so far. It's not clear what, what made the lawyer think that Jesus' Jesus's words were not meant to apply to him and his colleagues. But the reference to tithing, which in essence is a, a legal issue from the law, might have, have been a possible source of, of misunderstanding for them. And so since in the lawyer's view, Jesus could not possibly have meant to include lawyers in his criticism, 
He gives Jesus the, the opportunity to exclude them in what he's saying. He says, you're insulting us. You, why are you saying this in front of us? Jesus has no intention of letting lawyers off. He proceeds to single them out for special criticism with the fourth woe, telling them not to burden others. Verse 46, he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So the lawyer's job was to explain God's law in such a way that that it helped and inspired people. Instead, they've turned it into this tiresome burden. The lawyer's failure to, to touch the burdens with one of your fingers might mean that they didn't even lift a finger to help other people or that their interpretations enabled them to escape from having to follow all the rules they created. They didn't have to use a finger. Regardless, what Jesus is upset about is that the lawyers have added rules and regulations to each of the Old Testament laws in order to make sure someone doesn't break it. But they go way overboard in how they do this. For example, this would be an easy one for us to track. On the Sabbath, they taught a man may not carry a weight in his right hand or left hand, or in his bosom, or on his shoulder, okay? But you can carry weight like this, on the back of his hand, or with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, I don't even know what that means, or in his ear, or in his hair, or between his mouth and shirt like this, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal. That's totally clear, right, of how you're allowed to carry weight on the Sabbath? No questions there of oh shoot, it slipped from my elbow to my bosom and I am troubled now. Like, it's totally clear. Multiply this by all the regulations that they've added to each one of the laws of the Old Testament and ordinary people become so overwhelmed, they don't know what they can and can't do. But there's this multitude of loopholes for the lawyers, though, who have written these restrictions. They know how to get out of it so they can still do what they want to do. Woe to those who burden others. Fifth, woe to those who worship dishonestly. Here, uh, let's read, sorry, read verses 47 through 51 again to know what he's talking about. He says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So here Jesus says that the lawyers act like they honor and love the words of the prophets, when in fact, they're just like their forefathers, who killed the prophets of God in the Old Testament when they heard a message that they, they didn't want to hear, that they didn't like. Fancy tombs had been built to these past prophets, acting like, oh yeah, we love everything they did. But the lawyers today were rejecting the prophets and apostles just the same as was done in the past. Jesus mentions from Abel, so that's the first servant of God who's killed all the way back in Genesis, to Zechariah. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets who was literally murdered in the temple because of what he said to a king that he didn't like it. They stoned him to death right in the middle of the temple. This is to point out that this has always been the case, that their generation now is going to have to reckon with the faithful who were slain. This will obviously play itself out, most importantly, in the crucifixion of Jesus himself, the one that the prophets have all been talking and pointing to, the one who is the literal word of God, the one who has the answers to all of their questions. 
Then we get to the sixth woe. Don't reject God's word. This is 52, uh, just 52, sorry. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So the final woe reveals another paradox. The lawyers claimed to explain the meaning of the law and to be teachers of the people, when in fact, they have taken away the key of knowledge, meaning the key that unlocks the meaning of Scripture and brings people to the knowledge of God. Their their methods made it so that people could not get at the essential meaning of God's word. Instead of opening up the treasures of knowledge, the lawyers have shut the lid on it. They turned the Bible into a book of riddles and confusion, which only the experts could understand. And the experts were so pleased and preoccupied with the mysteries that they created that they themselves were missing the wonderful things that God was saying, including that Jesus is the Messiah. They neither entered themselves nor allowed others to enter into this. There were ordinary people who were on their way to the knowledge of God until these teachers turned them away. Jesus himself, he is the key to knowledge. That is through him that that people enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is wisdom in the flesh who speaks the word of God and gives knowledge and understanding. To reject Jesus and discourage others from believing in and receiving him, that's ultimate foolishness there. Only an utter fool would not consider someone and something that could potentially be the key to understanding everything. If Jesus really was and is God, who came to earth and lived and died to solve humanity's deepest problem of our sin separating us from the Father and meet its ultimate needs of reconciliation through forgiveness on the cross, then it's the most foolish thing one could do to not consider what he says and offers. Jesus says, woe, woe to such foolishness. He stands ready and willing to all who come to him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, seek him and you will find him, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that's the six woes, six warnings, six pleas, six piercing stabs of truth into the human heart and mind, which show us how much we need Jesus' light. So can you see now why Jesus had the tone he did with these guys? Can you hear the, the, the frustration, the sadness, the desperation in his voice for how those who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders, uh, spiritual leaders of the people are instead blinding them from the truth of who God is? Jesus needed to shine a piercing light onto them. Today, do you need to be pierced and cut to the heart? Maybe you're here and you, you are a follower of Jesus. And what you need most is to hear Jesus saying to you, you're being a fool. How you're living and the decisions you're making are are foolish. Stop it. Wake up. Let your eyes be good and the light shine out of you. Or maybe you're on the other end. Maybe you have a friend who really needs to be pierced by the truth of God's word. And you're afraid to say something because you don't know how they're going to react to you. Be courageous. It's not mean but loving to speak the truth. Truth balanced with grace and how we do this, especially though when you're doing it because you really love and care for the person. Jesus is the light we need, and his light comes to us through his word that pierces our heart. 
Now, here's the thing. When we're pierced, it's going to be painful at first, all right? But once we enter into it, we always end up feeling better and being better. Think of a surgeon. No surgeon ever operates because they want to hurt a person. But they cut a person open in order to heal them, right? And that's what Jesus, our great physician, does for us. He cuts us in order that our hearts might be healed. Really, Jesus was gracious in saying all the things that he did to these guys, even though it seems harsh when you first read it. He didn't have to, but he did so in hopes that they would hear and respond. Unfortunately, though, they don't, as we read on. The scene ends in verse 53 with him angry and upset and trying to figure out how to arrest him, which they ultimately accomplish probably like a year or so from now when they, when they seize him and they have him nailed to a cross. They rejected his words and his warnings. Don't make the same mistake today. Jesus is the light we need. Open your eyes and let, let his light come in to, to cleanse out the darkness and to enliven our soul. And that brings us to our last point of Jesus being a purifying light. So let's read uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you, whisp- what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So in the midst of larger crowds and, and growing opposition, Jesus issues a warning. And I think the setting of his words are not insignificant that Luke is including this. Even though people are, I mean, they're like practically crawling over one another to get to Jesus, the disciples should not be fooled by current popularity and need to remember the opposition that Jesus had faced and is going to face. Popularity can breed a desire to maintain popularity, which makes us soften the hard truth of our sinfulness before God. So Jesus warns them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, if you've ever made bread, I haven't, or have watched someone do it, or just understand the process, then you know about leaven or yeast. It's, it, yeast is this, this microorganism, which sounds disgusting when you say it like that, that you add to the dough, and you knead it into the dough. You just need a little bit of it. You set it out, and over the course of hours, the dough rises. It multiplies in size. Then you can put it in the oven, and out comes bread. Right? Is that how you make bread? Is that basically it? Go home and try that, just with those exact directions. Uh, Jesus says the Pharisees' way is like this dark, poisonous yeast where just a little bit of it corrupts the whole thing. Leaven speaks of, of, of a penetration that is slow and insidious and constant. In this case, Jesus straight up says the leaven he's talking about is hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The practice of saying one thing and doing another, it eats at the moral life like a cancer. The Pharisees' hypocrisy had just been discussed, right, in the previous passage when he's at at dinner. So this is going right along. Jesus is saying that the desire to impress can lead to a double life. The way of the Pharisees is not the way for Jesus' disciples. Now, many things could be said about hypocrisy. It's a topic that Jesus touches on often. But on this occasion, Jesus chooses to point out that hypocrisy is short-sighted. The art of being a hypocrite depends on one's ability to keep some things hidden. 
when concealment is no longer possible, the hypocrite is inevitably exposed, right? So at present, the Pharisees may have certain things covered up or hidden. They think that they're good to go. But in the end, on judgment day, all will be known. People may think that they've said things safely in secret, but all will be brought into the light. Remember what I said earlier, the light pushes back the darkness. And the purifying light of Jesus reveals the darkness that that we, as now the religious people of the day, may try to hide or cover up. Most hypocrites say one thing and then do another. They tell you what others want to hear to impress or maintain a good image, but on the inside, they're unchanged. God isn't impressed with our words or actions if they aren't matched with a clean heart. Jesus says that everything will be uncovered in time. If you pretend, if you hide things now, it will eventually come to light. Whatever you think you're doing in the privacy of your home, it'll come to light. Jesus is a purifying light. This is what commentator J.C. Ryle says about this. He says, how little is this really felt? How many things are done continually, which people would never do if they thought they were seen? How many matters are transacted in the rooms of imagination, which would never bear the light of day? Yes, people entertain thoughts in private and say words in private and do acts in private, which they would be ashamed and blushed to have exposed before the world. The sound of a footstep coming has stopped many a deed of wickedness. A knock at the door has caused many an evil work to be hastily suspended and hurriedly laid aside. But oh, what miserable folly is all this. There is an all-seeing witness with us wherever we go. Lock the door, pull down the blind, turn out the light. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. God is everywhere. You cannot shut him out or prevent his seeing. May we not be a people who come to church on a Sunday to worship our Creator and Savior, but then spend the rest of the week trying to hide our sin and hypocrisy in the darkness. Instead, we're to embrace Jesus and His teaching, which will prove to be true on the day when everything will be made known, uncovered, which the Bible says happens when He returns in all His glorious light with the angels of heaven. For those who who listen to the warnings of His woes, you will be vindicated. For those who reject them, their corruption and darkness will be seen by all. My prayer for all of us, for me, for you, is that we allow Jesus' light to pierce our hearts, to reveal our hypocrisy, to purify the sins and the minor things that we've elevated above the important things so that we can instead be full of his personal light, which will shine out in a world of darkness. I think we often forget, but remember Just because you know and have the light of Jesus now, you were spiritually blind before he was revealed. We're in the same place that the rest of the world is in right now. Be a people who shines the light of love and peace and grace to a world longing for a sign and to be found and rescued. Let's pray together. Lord, as we uh, come to you today, I I pray that Uh, those of us who have your light within us, that you will be working inside of us, that you will be purifying us, that you'll be piercing us and convicting us of of those things that we hold on to, just this one little sin, and I'll work on it, but it's too hard for me to do it right now. God, I pray you just would make those things be so evident in our lives and, 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 and 
just seen as like so dark that we have no other recourse but to turn to you and to eliminate those things. God, I know none of us can change ourselves on our own. That's why I'm thankful for you, that what you've done is you've provided a means for you to change us. Just help us to, to, to live into that, to step into that, to take away our pride of trying to appear as, as better or the more religious or, or you know, the better Christian or whatever it is, and instead to recognize we're all on the same playing field and that we need you and we can do nothing without you. God, I thank you for sending your son Jesus, for providing the light to the world that gives us hope in the midst of living in a sinful and dark world that this isn't where we belong, this isn't how things are always going to be, and that there's a way out of this, these circumstances we're in. I pray you just help us all to run to you, to, to, to throw ourselves at your mercy and your grace, to receive your forgiveness, and to follow you with all that we have. I praise things through Jesus' name. Amen.